So today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage? Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the first verse that we just read there in chapter 7 is really a conclusion or the, the, um, the direction given uh, uh, from those first promises that were in the previous chapter. So I want to read verse 1 again. Since we have these promises, those promises just referred to in the previous verse at the end of 16. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So since we have those promises, we should go back and look at what were those promises that were made that Paul quoted from the Old Testament. The first was that God declared he would make his dwelling among us and walk among us. That's from Leviticus 26, verse 12. Paul always makes his point with Scripture from the Old Testament because he believed the Word of God. Now, God did that. God did walk among us in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as the Scripture promised. John the Beloved tells us he tabernacled. It's an interesting expression in John 1:14. He tabernacled among us, meaning like uh, his body was a tent that he came and lived in while he was among us. He literally walked among us just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. The implication is that God would restore our state of innocence. God could no longer walk with Adam and Eve because sin separated mankind from God. Remember that to walk in a biblical sense is, is to live with. Thus, walk in the spirit means to live in the spirit. The promise declares a reversal of the fallen state of man, that separation that took place in Eden. 
And that was made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. That's why Paul wrote in verse 16 of the preceding chapter that we are the temple of the living God. Jesus' death for our sins made it possible for his spirit to live in us. That's why we claim him as our God. A person's God is, is what they live for. If you live for self, you're your own God. If you live for money, then money is your God. But if the Spirit of God lives in you, it is possible to live for God who loved you and gave himself for you. I will be their God, he said. That means so much more than just saying you're a Christian. It's to live with God and for God. Then God can claim us as his people. We are adopted into the family of God as that second promise declared. The children of Israel, something was similar was said to them. Actually, Paul's quoting that. They were said to be the children of God or the people of God. They were to walk with God as Abraham did, which is a life of faith. However, most of the nation, as we read throughout the Old Testament, failed to do so. Theirs is a history of ups and downs. In fact, as you read through um, the uh, Kings and Chronicles and then you go on into the minor prophets, you just, you know, you go, oh, that's wonderful, they're back. Oh, it's terrible, they just fall, fell again. Oh, good, they're back again. It's just, just this up and down cycle. But when they rejected Jesus, despite all the signs and fulfillment of scripture that they could see in his life, we were given a clear picture that with man, salvation is impossible. We need the Holy Spirit who was promised to be poured out on all flesh. There's an interesting moment in the life of Jesus shortly before the crucifixion when these Greeks came up to Andrew and Philip. Greek names, by the way. They picked out the disciples with Greek names and they asked to see Jesus. And when Jesus heard of the request, he didn't say, oh good, the Gentiles are seeking me or, or tell them to meet me at three o'clock or something like Instead, he answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What a strange response. Jesus knew the prophecies that foretold the Messiah would be a light to the nations. He knew that the Jews would reject him and that he would die for the sins of the world. If the Greeks were seeking him, it was time. The time had come for him to make that possible through his death on the cross and his resurrection. The hinge of history was turning from the failure of the chosen ones to keep the law to the inclusion of the world by faith in the only one who did keep the law and bear our sins. They shall be my people was ultimately for the people of faith. Faith in God who made a way for us to be righteous, as Paul explained in Romans 4, 9 to 11. The first promise then that Paul is referring to in 7, 1 is that of being our God and us being his people. 
Notice that he calls the Corinthians beloved in that first verse. Even though they had listened to the doubts about his authority and seemed to have forgotten his example and the sacrifices he made for them, they're still his beloved. He led many of them to Christ and he wouldn't let their stumbling affect that love that he had for them. That's how we need to be towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Regardless of offenses, they should remain beloved to us. The second promise is if we will come out of the world, separate ourselves from worldliness and refuse to live for self like the rest of the world does, if we won't touch the defiled things of the world, represented in the Old Testament by the things that were declared unclean, then he will welcome us. That contrasts with the expulsion from the Garden of Eden where they were no longer welcome back in. He will welcome us back into familial relationship. Now, some of us didn't grow up in a healthy family, in a loving family. When I say familial relationship, I mean that God, like a loving father who seeks our best interests and knows how to guide us into what is best for us because of his great love for us. He is the perfect father. It is because of these promises that Paul's referring to in the Old Testament that we should cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Jesus makes us right in the eyes of God, but we must come out of the world's ways and cleanse our behavior with the help of the Holy Spirit. He does the work in our hearts, but we have to work it out in our daily life. That means that whatever's pulling us away from yielding to the will of our loving Father, whether it's physical or spiritual, we should cooperate with him to cleanse us of those thoughts or actions. If you have doubts whether something's a, a thought or action that pleases God, look into his word to see what he says about it. And if you're still not sure, I always say, if in doubt, don't. Or go to a, a brother in Christ that you know understands the word and, and lives the word and ask him for godly counsel. Doubt is probably a good sign that you should put it away from your life. If you don't feel good about sharing with a trusted friend, it's probably a sign that it's something you should put away. The word cleanses our hearts and minds. So we look to scripture, we seek out scripture that's on that particular subject that we're struggling with and we memorize it. And we use it when the temptation comes, just as Jesus did in the temptation in the wilderness. When you're tempted to return to that behavior, quote that scripture to yourself and ask for God's help. Cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And God's word aids us to that end. The last part of the verse, bringing holiness to completion, is to live out what God has put in us. It's to let the spirit of God reign in our hearts. It's to have the fear of God, which means to know he disciplines us, he disciplines our disobedience out of love for us. 
It's to understand that he's done so, so much for us and expects us to respond appropriately to his love and grace and not just take it for granted. As Paul said in Romans chapter 6, shall we go on sinning that grace might abound? God forbid. It's to represent Christ in our work, in our home and leisure. Or as Paul said earlier in a passage of this letter, to let the life of Christ be manifest in our mortal bodies. We must always be yielding to conviction to be moving onward and upward. Amen? Are you sure? Verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Now, in this verse, the expression in your hearts was added to the original because in verse in the previous chapter, in verse 13, he said, make room in your hearts for us. So we, uh, when he says make room or open, open wide your hearts for us, here they assume make room means in your hearts, which I think is accurate. He claimed that they had been restricted in their affections towards Paul and his team. And to this point, Paul had been sharing the things that he and his team endured for their sake, for the sake of the gospel, describing their heart and, and how they were perceived. And in this verse, he makes it clear and bold statements countering the claims of those false teachers. The three denials most likely give us an insight into the accusations of those false teachers. The first was we've wronged no one. So we can only imagine how those false teachers must have claimed that Paul was wronging them, possibly, and by not telling them of the need to obey the law. Because of the rest of the letters of Paul, we see this constant conflict between grace and the Judaizers trying to get the believers to obey the law for their salvation. Because the law promises prosperity. If you look in the Old Testament, obedience to the scriptures, say you'll be fiscally uh, prosperous. The prosperity of preachers of today preach that same message. They use Malachi 3.10 about bringing the tithes into the storehouse and having a blessing uh, so big you can't contain it. Even Jesus' words, give and it shall be given unto you. But new covenant prosperity is spiritual, which is infinitely more valuable than the physical. I'll not go over again the, the why prosperity teaching is an abuse of scripture, but suffice to say, we only need to look at the lives of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus died with the cloak on his back and that was taken from him. That was all he had. Most of the disciples died with nothing in martyrdom. If that's prosperity, uh, the way the prosperity preachers teach, uh, I'm confused. Jesus is our ultimate example. We could also look at the Sermon on the Mount and see a sharp contrast. Blessed are the poor, Luke 6.20. Paul's teaching had not wronged the Corinthians. He'd shown them the truth of the new covenant that the priority of the spiritual over the physical was so much greater. The second denial was we've corrupted no one. The Greek verb here can mean ruined or destroyed a person. The church couldn't point to anyone whose life was worse for Paul's teaching. In fact, the opposite was true. They'd been blessed. 
Spiritually, the word transforms lives for the better, whereas stirring up greed by preaching works-based salvation often ends in strife. The third denial was that they'd not taken advantage of anyone. Paul's team worked with their own hands to support themselves so the Corinthians wouldn't be able to make any accusation that they were doing it for personal gain. Now, Paul didn't do that everywhere, but I believe the Holy Spirit led him to do that in Corinth because God knew this, these accusations were going to be coming from the false teachers. How important it is for us not to just follow a pattern. Do the same thing everywhere. Say the same thing every time, but to wait on the Lord and see his direction. Verse 3, I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before, you're in our hearts to die together and live together. So Paul's not blaming them for being influenced by false teacher. He just wants them to know how much he and his team truly love them. They have the Corinthian congregation in their hearts to live with them and to die with them. In other words, in life or death, they're bound together by unconditional love. That's the heart of a mature believer. They hear and live out Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us. And how does Jesus love us? We're in his heart to die together and to live together with us. Our old nature was crucified with Christ, died with him. And now we live in the resurrected Christ. He lives in us. He lives together with us. We are his tabernacle, and that is love. When we stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives, our rewards are going to be based on what we did with the great command. If we love God with all our hearts and love those he died for, we'll be rewarded. Loving our neighbor as ourselves is only possible when Christ is in us. Agape is an attribute only those who are in Christ possess as a first fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul had sacrificially served the Corinthians, but even when their attitude toward him soured, he didn't hold it against them. He's not condemning them. He's sharing how much he loves them because it's love that changes hearts. In chapter 12, verse 15, he's going to tell them that he would most gladly spend and be spent for them. And even though he expresses that he loves them more, even if they love him less. Humbling, isn't it? Do our hearts measure up to that standard? That we can love people more even when they love us less? Oh, Lord, do that work in us. Amen. Help us be willing to be transformed into his image. Widen our hearts to include those who you've brought into our lives. Verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. This expression uh, literally means I'm, I'm being uh, authentic with you. I'm, I'm sharing what I actually feel. Paul's writing with this uh, Boldness, which is that authenticity in sharing how much they are loved by him and what he has endured for them. He wouldn't do that unless he knew they were mature enough to hear and receive what he was writing. And thus, he says he has great pride in them. 
His great boldness is because of, his, of that great pride he has in them, that trust he has in their spiritual standing. You know, sometimes I know someone needs to hear something, but I can't tell them because they're too spiritually immature to hear it. It would offend them, and they would misinterpret it. With those who are more mature in their faith, I can be bolder in sharing what they really need to hear. I'm proud that they've grown so strong in their faith under my discipleship. And by that, I mean proud in what the Lord has done in them, yielding to His hand molding their lives. And it fills me with comfort to know the Lord is making disciples and that His fruit will remain. I don't fear that they'll fall away because they are the Lord's fruit, not mine. And the good shepherd keeps his own. Verse four, the second part. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Paul has shared about what they endured for their love for the Lord and for that church, but he doesn't want them to think that he, he regrets the sacrifices he's made. On the contrary, in all their affliction, he's overflowing with joy. Notice it, that he writes, our affliction in the plural, that's the affliction his whole team has suffered, but I, in the singular, am overflowing with joy. Apparently, the whole team didn't get excited about the affliction. But Paul's following Jesus' command to rejoice when we're persecuted because persecution for Jesus puts us among the prophets. It means you're a light in the darkness. And I imagine Paul's joy then lifted the spirits of the others on his team who had a hard time finding joy in the afflictions. But don't think it was easy for Paul or that he was always a super saint. Remember at the beginning of the letter, chapter one, verse eight, he told them at one point he was burdened beyond his strength and despaired of life itself. We are still in these mortal bodies and still daily, continually resisting the flesh nature. Nevertheless, Paul would come to a point of overflowing joy. The letter now moves on to what they went through and, and how he came to that overflowing joy. Verse five, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every turn, fighting without and fear within. Sometimes the going gets rough and that's part of life, whether you're a Christian or not. Paul's fear within was that Titus had not arrived, and, and Paul didn't know if the Corinthians had received or rejected his strongly worded letter. This inner fear was not fear for oneself, but concern for the spiritual state of those whom Paul loved. The greater our love for someone, the greater our bur the burden on our heart to see them live in the light. When physical difficulty combines with spiritual or emotional burden, we're most vulnerable. It's then that we need to completely lean on the Lord and experience His strength. We deny the negativity of the enemy and praise God for who we know Him to be while waiting patiently for God to bring us through. We say with Job, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. And we continue by faith what we know He would have us do then in God's perfect time, 
the comfort comes. Verse six and seven, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. Paul doesn't say that the fighting without ceased, but the greatest burden was lifted when Titus arrived with the good news. Paul didn't just credit this to man. He says it's God who answers prayer. He pointed to the nature of God, declaring that it's, he is God who comforts the downcast. What a wonderful expression, isn't it? Next time you are downcast, remember God is the God who comforts the downcast. Amen? Why would he make that claim? It's because that's what scripture declares. It was God who comforted Abraham by assuring him that the, him, the promised son would be born even in his old age. The same God comforted Joseph by reminding him of the dream that he had given him as he endured all that difficulty on, on the way to it being fulfilled. It was God who comforted the people of Israel as they were there at the Red Sea and saw the army of Pharaoh behind them when he told them, the Lord will fight for you and you only need to be silent. And it was God who told the discouraged prophet Elijah that there were still 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And we could tell of many more accounts, including our own lives. When I'm downcast, the Lord often comforts me through the Psalms. I have only to remember his great love for me displayed on the cross and I'm comforted. Not only had the Corinthians received the harsh letter, but they'd received it with longing, with mourning, and with zeal for Paul. They brought Titus great comfort by their sorrow and in turn brought great comfort to Paul's team, causing Paul to rejoice greatly. The Proverbs tell us hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. It's almost as if he lets us go to the depths so that our joy will be even greater. It was certainly a fulfilled desire of Paul's heart to hear how they received his correction. And verse eight and nine, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. One of the difficult tasks of God's under shepherds is correction because it often causes grief. But godly grief brings repentance. It's short-lived because it results in joy from the communion with God being restored. When we're in sin, we can pray, but we don't want to listen, right? You know what I'm saying? You can talk to God, you can complain to God, but you don't want to hear God's answer until you repent. And then that communion restored, the window of heaven is open to you again. And the comfort comes with the forgiveness. 
Verse 8 sounds like Paul regretted sending this harsh letter. He may have had second thoughts about it being too harsh. But when he heard that it resulted in the fruit of repentance, it was cause for his rejoicing. The godly grief was not a loss, but a journey to restoration and joy. The letter turned out to be a benefit for all. May we also be receptive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to avoid corruption of the gospel that so easily slips into the church, into our lives, compromise. Uh, as we saw in the previous passage, that compromise with the world. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, we need to be sensitive. We need to respond by coming out of the world and being separated to God's use. So let each of us guard our hearts to see that we are moving onward and upward. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask Jill to lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction.